0: So, who is God? God is holy. God is sovereign. God is good. And God is love. Now, love is an incredible attribute of God. But last week, we talked about God's goodness, and we, we recognize that we have a tendency to, to shift our use of words from, from the relative element of God's goodness to the objective element of God's goodness, the, the comparing him to other things or other people versus the taking him for just who he is. We have a tendency to do something similar when we talk about God's love. And the general tendency is to see that God in his word says that he is love. And then to walk away from that and allow the world to define love. And then retroactively put that back on God and say, so this is what you must be like. Because you said you're love. The problem is we shifted to the wrong place to find a definition for what this love is. And then as we try to impose that or superimpose that back on God, it would be a lot like trying to take water out of a water faucet and, and as it's coming out, inject red dye into it and assume that pretty soon red dye is going to be coming out of the faucet. It's never going to happen. No matter how much dye we put into what's coming out of the faucet, we're never going to change upstream from that what is happening. In the same way... In the same way God, no matter what we say about love as a culture and as a people, it does not change what he is as love. He has set the parameters. He has set all of the objective of his love. And now we see how that plays out. We can't then take our preferences and try to superimpose that back on God. We're gonna read 1 John chapter four, it's verses seven through 12. And in this, you're going to hear the word love 13 times, 14 if you count the very first word, which is beloved, which isn't really the word love, but it's pretty close. And in fact, they're, they're all the word agape, And beloved is a form of the word agape, so it really is in this same vein. So let's read this passage. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his perfect and his love is perfected in us it's a very short number of verses to reference agape or love 13 times so why repeat it that much because we're slow That's really what it comes down to. If, if, we were really, if we were really quick, if we really understood, if we were really as smart as we want to say we are, he would just have to say, hey, guys, God is love. End of letter. But we don't get it. So he repeats it, and he explains it, and then he repeats it, and he explains it. And actually, three more times in this passage, there's another element of God's love that is incredibly important as we try to understand it, explicitly stated, two more than implied from those three. And those three are this, beloved, let us love one another. And then he says again, love one another. And then he says again, love one another. So, this isn't just some some sort of ethereal abstract thing. This is something that has purpose and focus and action and movement to it. Uh, But twice more we're going to see in this. He says, "Uh, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves implying loves what? one another. Whoever loves one another has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love who? One another. Anyone who does not love one another does not know God because God is love. Now, why make a big deal about that? Our culture tells us those are fantastic verses, And what they say, what they want, is for us to then be beholden to whatever they say love is. Remember how they they take that God says he is love, we then impose or try to superimpose our own perspective of what that means onto him so that he has to do what we want. And this is saying it's not just that God is love, he is, but the way that we see that in us is not just that we love things or we have a feeling of love but that we love one another. One another is a term New Testament used for other believers, particularly. There are, I think it's 53 one another commands in the New Testament, three of them out of this passage explicitly. And we are to love one another. The people sitting in this room the people who go to this church, the people who are part of the body of Christ in this town, our job is to love one another. This is not a statement on how we are supposed to engage culture. Though, we are supposed to be loving to people. But that's going to play out differently. We're going to to talk about that after a bit. But this is about how we engage with one another. Why make any sort of deal about this? Ultimately, because even as believers, we sometimes misappropriate what it means to love. And what we end up saying is something much more akin to what the world says, which is, "Oh, God is love, so here's people living or doing uh, wrong, immoral things, but we need to love them. Let's put our arms around them and, and, and sort of do this accepting kindness with them. I happened to walk in on one of the growth groups before they were growth groups, I guess one of the ABFs this summer, and because I thought I heard Vadi Baham speaking, and I did because he was and I was listening to this this talk by Vadi, and if you 're not familiar with Vadi Baham he's like a giant black man, and you 'll never forget him if you see him big white beard, big black guy, and he is amazing at understanding the scriptures and and i had i had tried to formulate the kind of thoughts that he was articulating and i couldn't ever quite do it but ultimately what he said is this we have an idea that that since god is love we are just to love and and we do it the way the world wants but there's a kind of love that's actually sinful so we're in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. If we went back to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, we're going to come to a verse that actually was the, the cornerstone verse for the very first paid pastoral role that I was ever in, which was the youth ministry in York, Nebraska. And we use this as our cornerstone set of verses. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever forever. And if he tells us to not love something, then loving it would be sinful. And that's where we really get at odds with our culture because our culture says no love is sinful because love is of God. And even as a Christian culture, we have a tendency to say love can't be sinful because love is of God. But here it says, the kind of love that we try to give the world is the kind of love that is sinful. Why? Why can a love be sinful? Because it's given to the wrong thing. In this case, it's given to the world and the processes of the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, or the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We give our love to these things. That's what the world is composed of. The sinful world is composed of those things. And God says, that's sinful. Our love is supposed to be given to him, and then we are to be a conduit of his love to other people. But if we try to love... Or say that all love is good because you love. It opposes the scripture. And that's where we've misunderstood the love of God. So then what is God's love? If God is love, what does it mean that he is love? Back to John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this is love. Or in this, the love of God was made manifest. In this, God demonstrated, God made visible, God enacted his love. He made it manifest among us. God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. Now in case... We miss that. In case we misunderstand where that is really going, he wants us to know that this is not just that God sent Jesus to live here. Because he sent him in verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent Jesus to appease the wrath of God, which he had said only can be appeased by death. So he sent Jesus to earth for the purpose of death so that not everyone had to die. So Jesus came to die on our behalf to make a propitiation, to make an appeasement to God's right wrath that is born out of his holy justice that would be ultimately poured out on us because we were violators of his character. and Instead, he sent Jesus to be that propitiation, to be that, that sacrifice, to take that wrath so that we couldn't because it would have destroyed us. And so Jesus took it. So what does God's love looks like? look like? It looks like sending his son to die on our behalf. It looks like giving up of what is simple for him to do what is best for someone else. But it's more than that. It's actually not more than that, but we need to understand it more than that. We have a tendency, it's easy for us as people to say, oh, this is what's best for that person, so that's good. And that's true, we are to make decisions that are best for someone else, but what is the particular best that is being referred to here? When we say God is love, what that means is that God is working out of his character something that puts people in the best position or in a right position to have a relationship with him. That is love, right? He doesn't just say, well, let's read it again. Starting in verse nine, in this, the love of God was made manifest. He demonstrated among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. God sent his son so that we could live. Now, in case you missed that, he says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to die on the cross to appease the wrath of God, to be a propitiation for our sins. So what does love look like? love looks like doing for someone else what they couldn't do for themselves to put them in the best relationship, best position with God that there could be. That's what he did. Can we do that? Can I do that for you or you do that for me? No. We can play it out in miniature ways of that, where, where we do things so that we can help somebody see Christ most clearly. We can do the things so that we help people have their hearts bent toward him as much as possible. But we can't force these things to happen because we are, oh, we should just learn this mantra. We are not God. Right? Uh, we're not actually going to start chanting that, don't worry, because that just seems weird. But That is a really important thing to understand, deep in who we are. We are not God. What He can do, we we cannot necessarily do. We can try, we can take steps in that direction, but what He can do, we cannot. Now, it's interesting in this. As we start looking at God's love, and we start trying to then figure out what our love looks like, there's an element of God's love that we have a tendency to neglect, And that is that it is unilateral, not reciprocal. God does not love because we loved him. God does not love because we're nice people. God does not love because we're cute, beautiful, or kind. He loved us while we hated him. And he unilaterally decided to demonstrate this love to send his son to draw us to him He didn't ask what our thoughts were on the matter. Why? Because this kind of love is dependent on the giver, not the receiver. God is the giver of his love. He can give this love to people. It's not dependent on how we reciprocate that love to him. Now, don't miss this. Should we reciprocate that love? Absolutely. Let's actually take a step back from that. If we don't reciprocate his love, then we show that we don't understand or know his love. Every believer will reciprocate that love. We must. Every believer will obey. Perfectly, no. But every believer will obey. Every believer will grow as a product of God's loving them, as a product of being believers. It's not a prerequisite. Which if there's a, a flip side to the first error about God's love that we talked about, which is, which is this idea that, that all love makes God happy, uh, the sort of flip side to that is we have a tendency to say, since those things don't please God, you must purge yourself of them before you can come to Him. And we treat the world... Like they should be acting like the Christians. The world shouldn't be acting like the Christians. They don't have the Holy Spirit residing in them to cause that to happen. They're acting exactly how they should, like people who don't believe in Jesus. They're making decisions based on that criteria. They're having morals based on that criteria. And then as we put our faith in Jesus, our moral decisions change. Our practical decisions change because we do trust Jesus. So the flip side to the first issue is that we have a tendency to say, now fix yourself so you can be part of us. And they can't. They don't have the strength to, the ability. I don't have the strength to. I don't have the ability to. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him while we were his enemies. He chose to love us in such a way as to take steps to put us in a right relationship with him. Now, we will fail at this, at following him. We will fail at being like him. And at that moment, we need to always remember that he will never forsake us. If we are faithless, Paul writes, God remains faithful to us. So in the midst of all of this trying to decipher what is his love, where have I missed it, where have I grasped it, where have I showed it, where have I failed to show it? In the midst of all of this, is God's faithfulness to us regardless of our faithfulness to him. Again, it's a unilateral love. His love poured out on us that will result ultimately in our being like him, but it's not dependent on our being like him. If it was, then when we were faithless, he would be faithless. Marriage is supposed to be this picture, and I I mean not to step on toes. So if I sound offensive, understand it's not on purpose. The picture of marriage was supposed to be a picture of salvation. I offered my vows of allegiance to my wife, irrespective of whatever decisions she would make in days and years future. None of my vows said anything about, I will love you, cherish you, honor you, as long as you are kind or faithful or whatever to me. And she has been all of those things that she should be. But my vows weren't dependent on that. My vows were a unilateral decision to love this person. And when that breaks in marriage, marriages have a tendency to break. When that breaks with Christ, it never breaks because it can't. Because if we are faithless, he remains faithful. and this isn't just found in the new testament this isn't just a once jesus came then all of this shifted sort of thing if we go back to psalm chapter 42 verse 8 it says by day the lord commands his steadfast love his his covenantal never ending love to his people and at night his song is with me a prayer to the a, a prayer to god to the god of my life Psalm chapter 13, verses five and six says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Again, God's love is tied to his salvation. Again, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And then Micah chapter seven, verses 18 to 20. (coughs) That didn't really work. I thought that was gonna block this better. Excuse me. Micah chapter 7 verses 18 to 20 who is a god like you pardoning iniquity what is pardoning iniquity it's another way to talk about salvation forgiving so now we're we're still in this idea of salvation who is a god like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance Notice it also doesn't say for everyone, but this is for the people who are part of his inheritance, the people who have trusted him, who have faith in him. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights, he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea you will show faithfulness to Jacob and the steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Abraham and Jacob, a reference to them, is a reference metaphorically or, or uh, image, in an image to the earliest of followers of God. It's as far back as they can go. They don't reference Adam and Eve They reference Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because that's when Israel started, right? Jacob's name was changed to Israel. That's when this this people began. And so when they reference back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's a reference back to the very beginning of the followers of God. And we see love tied to salvation throughout all of it. So how how exactly do we do this? And this is where it gets really hard. Because whatever is simple for most of us is not the best way to love people. So for each of us as broken people it becomes a constant grinding and working of showing this to people. James chapter 2 verses 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, what good is that? Without giving them the things that they need, what good is that so also faith by itself is if it does not have works is dead uh, galatians chapter 2 galatians chapter 6 verse 2 says that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of christ which particularly is about sin and this is particularly about physical needs but only in its example not in its breadth. The breadth of the meaning of those passages is far greater than just sin, far greater than just physical needs. It's helping bear the weight of life, of ministry, of whatever it is that a person needs because you care about them. It's helping bear the weight of of devastation that people have, bearing the weight of failure that people have, bearing the weight of disappointment, of illness, of whatever would be weighing a person down, we are to help bear that burden. Why? So that it doesn't crush and destroy our fellow believer. When somebody comes to us and our response is, go in peace, be warmed and filled. We don't usually say that because that sounds really bad. Do you know what we say instead? I'll pray for you. Man, I am, we are out of food at our house. I will pray for you. Great, but you have food in your house, right? Isn't that how you could really show that love to that person by giving what God has given extra to you? By me giving what God has given extra to me to this other person so that they would have what they need? Yes. Does that mean that every time somebody wants something, they should get it? No. And this is where it's difficult. And the decision has to be this. What decision is most selfless And cross-centered. The cross was not a wasted thing, right? God didn't do this just like, I hope somebody will believe. Right? He had a plan and a purpose, and he enacted that. And so when somebody comes with a need, whether it's an emotional need, a physical need, whatever it is, a sin need, and we say we want to help bear this burden, it means we are going to try to do what's selfless, and cross-centered at the same time. What is going to be least about me and most about Jesus? But in a way that's actually about Jesus and actually not about me. If If you give money, so this is Brock speaking on Brock's behalf, not on the elder's behalf or on Bethel's behalf, so know that. You know how in 1 Corinthians Paul says, and I say this, not the Lord, but me. This is my understanding and take on it. Uh, this is sort of Brock saying that. If you give money to Bethel and you say, boy, I'd really like my name on a plaque with where this money's used. I would like to give you the money back. Because it's not about having your name on something. It's not about anybody else knowing that you did it. Oh, let me give this so n- nobody knows. But then it's in memory of my mom and dad. Well, then everybody knows who it's from. And I don't mean to be to be condescending or rude or mean. I don't mean that at all. Because maybe there's people out there who are far more selfless than me, and they could do that, and it's really not about them. Every time I would do it, it would be about me. When I came and interviewed with the elders, Chris Mauser asked me the question, What do you struggle with the most? Like, what kind of question is that? That's just mean. The answer is actually really simple. I am the most prideful person you know. By nature, I am the most prideful person you know. And competitive. So if we're not careful, I will try to show you that I'm more prideful than you. And that's just really messed up. But in knowing that, I know that everything I do, if I don't keep a strong check on it, even if I say it's selfless, it's to indirectly get applause for Brock. And that's not okay. Whatever decision is there must be selfless because God is love. Whatever decision is there must be Christ-centered, cross-centered because of his love demonstrated for us. And then we must make sure that, that our eyes, if we are going to demand If we are going to demand righteousness, which we should, it must be within this body of people that we demand that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul deals with the sexual sin within the Corinthians, and he writes this in 1 Corinthians 5, it's 1 Corinthians 5, it's really verses 9 to 13, but we're going to hear it specifically in 12 and 13, but it starts in verse, it starts in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. You would need to not be here if you didn't engage with the sexually immoral and sinful of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler. Now, that is intentionally, specifically saying people who that is what they're known for. That is their life. Not people who have failures. Why? Because if every time we had a failure, we couldn't associate with each other, then we would never associate with each other. But this is for people who choose that their life is going to look like this. Do not even eat with such a one for what I have, what, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside, so purge the evil from within. What does that mean? It means that in love, at times, we must purge things that are evil from within our own people. Why? When I discipline my kids, I always ask them why they need a consequence. Okay, always. I try to always ask them why they need a consequence. And they need a consequence because they sinned. And then especially for my little ones, I try to ask them, do I love you even when you sin? And the answer is yes. And then I tell them, because I love you, I can't let you do this. It's not the old hold a belt in your hand and say, this is good for you, boy. It's not that. This is because I love you, I can't let this continue because where this goes is horrible and it leads to death. So we have to stop it now with the consequence So we, in the same way, purge the evil from within. And that sounds like a good segue into, here's a big issue. I don't know of anything. There's no reason for that. But at some point, there may be something that has to be dealt with, that has to be engaged with, and the purpose must be that our desire is to show God's love and his development of his people as we do what is most cross-centered, most selfless. Because Jesus came as a propitiation for our sins to move us into and continue to develop a right relationship in us with God because who is God? God is love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the opportunity, the undeserved opportunity to know you, to follow you, to love you, we thank you, Father, for your love and for what it has done and will continue to do for us as individuals, for us as a body of people. We pray, Father, that your Son would be most honored, that your Son would be most glorified in the things that we do in the things that we say and our motives and our actions, and that we, Father, would rightly understand what it means that you are loved. We come to you in the holy and amazing and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.